Hi, I'm Lewis Herbert. There's three of us in the studio and we're all really interested in planning. In a city as vibrant, some would say, as fast growth as others might claim, as overgrown as some may say, planning is a big issue and at the heart of it is the local plan. For us, and for me as, a, as was a councillor, and for both Sam Davis here, who's a local councillor for Queen Edith's Ward, as well as a commentator on many other things, particularly challenging some of the issues in the local plan, and Peter Studdett, who previously was head of planning in Cambridge City Council, but then embraced the two zones that are now part of the joint planning, which is important, South Cambridgeshire. Planning starts with plans. A lot of it is still run by central government. They keep faffing around and changing policy and we may get into some of what the current changes are. We're going to cover the plan that Peter had a big role in, which was probably the most insightful change in planning, which ran from 2006 all the way through to the plan that replaced it in 2018. And it was a set of bold changes. It, it did a number of requirements in terms of requiring Im improved infrastructure, and it did uh, allow the uh, release of certain parts of the Greenbelt. Some of that plan is still being built out today. We'll have a look at issues of affordable housing and net zero, and we'll also discuss is the local plan working for residents and do residents um, have an adequate say. And then in the second half, we'll be looking at the reasons behind proposals which may involve the addition of 20,000 homes to the 37,000 homes that were approved broadly when the last local plan was adopted in 2018. And we'll discuss some big challenges, uh, water supply, net zero carbon, and exactly where the public and other people in Cambridge want that plan to go. We're going to start in this first half looking, Sam, at the sort of inheritance of local plans. So for you, what do you think is good or not good about the local plan system? I want to start with a quote that I saw from Richard Blythe, who's the head of policy at the Royal Tower Planning Institute. He was attending a conference and he commented that picking up on the that attitude of the professional planners at the conference um, they didn't so much have a planning regime they have a permitting regime and I thought that was a really interesting way of framing it because you've alluded to the tension between national government powers and local government powers in terms of shaping place and it doesn't seem to me that the local plan process really can deliver on the illusion of security and predictability that it purports to give to residents. And this morning I was writing down, you know, some of the things that one might believe if you read the local plan it could achieve, but that actually it can't. So you just talked about water, it can't control the delivery of utilities infrastructure, of NHS capacity, of education. It doesn't in Cambridge it doesn't control transport because of course transport sits with the county council rather than with the local planning authority in the city and south camps. It can't control changes to national planning policy, such as the creation of the class E use class, 
which has now created a, a you know relative free-for-all in terms of premises which have permission for one use to now convert to another. It can't control delivery. And I have a very painful example of that in my own ward where a piece of land was taken out of Greenbelt for development with the promise of an active travel route, which has then, as it's worked its way from local plan allocation to outline planning permission, we've discovered that, in fact, that's not deliverable. And the big one for me is in Cambridge, we've taken a different approach to working out our housing need. Instead of going with the standard methodology, where you look at how many houses your population needs and then make assumptions about how much employment space you need as a result of that. In Cambridge, we've turned that on its head. So we have what's called an employment-led housing strategy. And that means we start with how many jobs we think are going to be created here and then work out how many houses that necessitates. And that would be uh, viable if we actually had a grip on the amount of employment space we're creating. The CB1 development at the station, which was a product of the 2006 local plan, has outlined consent for a maximum of 53,000 square metres of gross external area. The most recent planning applications to to complete that site indicate that it has created of the order of 80,000 square metres of gross internal area of office space. So we're nearly 50% over the employment space we said we were going to make there. That is now going to fuel the demand for further housing. It feels to me like no one really is managing the process of balancing employment space and housing. And I I think that's a really big problem. I think certainly the local plans from my perspective, and this applies right across the country, they they tend to not look at the challenging area of the economy. So they don't quantify very hard or clearly what is the economy, nor do they often allocate very effectively the amount of space that there's going to be for jobs. I guess they partly anticipate that it's going to be a very different decade, the next one to the last one, and sometimes they can't actually see what's there. Peter, you were the significant author of the 2006 local plan in terms of leading a department, um, and I'm sure you wrote some sections of it, and it was um, effectively a radical and bold document. Um, what, what kind of inheritance does has that left and and how much is still for instance to be built out from that plan given that uh, sites take a long time to bring to fruition i mean obviously there is a lot still to be built out from that plan i, I think you know there's a number of things i'd like to say in response to sam i think the first thing is that although planning has what we might call scientific elements to it i see planning as being an art as much as a science because you could never predict everything that's going on. Things will change and the world will change quicker than plans can be changed. Politics changes quicker than plans can be changed so that one's all, nothing is ever kind of static and predictable. I think that's the first point. I think the second point is just to go back to the 2006 plan, just how radical that plan was. The important context for that plan was that it was part of a 
a process that had started off at the regional level through the 2000 regional planning guidance and had worked its way through a county structure plan, the 2003 county structure plan, which was when counties had um, strategic planning powers as well as transport planning powers, so that by the time it got down to the local plan level with the city and the South Cams, a lot of the big issues had been discussed and had already been uh, integrated into the into the regional picture and the sub-regional picture. And the job of the, of the local plan was really just to fill out the detail in many ways. As we discussed in the first of the programmes of this series, a lot of that regional and strategic planning layer has gone and, and it's now um, this gap between national policy and and local plans. And that's one of the reasons, in my view, why local plans are struggling now because that intermediate context has gone. For instance, it's very difficult for Cambridge to have a discussion about the role of the market towns, for instance, that surround Cambridge and what role the market towns play in meeting Cambridge's growth, both in terms of jobs growth and housing growth, uh, other than at an informal level. But through the structure plan and through uh, regional plans, there was actually a formal process for having that debate. Yeah, you had an East of England plan, and I remember going along to the Assembly. So you had a we had an East England Development Agency, you yep. had an East of England plan, you had a government East of England office on Brooklands Avenue, but you definitely had a very strong framework where the local plan didn't have to replicate because the council, you and others, had had an input into those policies, which were then being applied across six counties, as yep. well as it gave it a and framework. And then the county, as yeah, on the 1st of February 2003, they came up with their outline and there were elements like the district sharing out how much housing was going to be where yeah yes i mean you could a decision could be made saying well this this area can take more housing because that's maybe where the jobs are this area maybe shouldn't take quite so much housing than 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 a normal projection forward projection might suggest because it's particularly environmentally sensitive or because the, the jobs growth isn't going to be so strong there so one could make these strategic decisions over a bigger area. I mean, in fact, the 2000 regional planning guidance were just for East Anglia, actually. And then when the Labour government came in in 1997 and were changing some of the planning regimes and they abolished county structure plans and the regional planning guidance just pulled it into one um, regional uh, spatial strategy. I mean, the good thing about looking at the east of England means that you could start talking about Newmarket, you could start talking about Royston and and other areas which are actually outside East Anglia and certainly outside Cambridgeshire and the role that they might play in the sub-regional growth strategy. So So there was was a better linkage between the uh, areas where a lot of people have to use a bus or a train to get into Cambridge. So so what, what from the 2006 plan do you think is worth us sort of reflecting on or what was in it that's still with us? Let's take a step further back because when I arrived as city planning officer in 1991, my goodness, that's an awfully long time ago. Oh, God, that's uh, ages ago. Uh, it's, it's kind of Neolithic. Um, it, <laughs> I, I arrived in 1990, and yeah. I, I just had the issue well, of recycling arrived, and waste to deal with. You dealt with planning. When I arrived, I had one economic development officer in my department, and his job was to try to persuade businesses to go somewhere else. And when businesses wanted to come and set up in Cambridge, they were said they were intercepted and said, well, wouldn't you actually rather go to March or to Chatteris or somewhere? There was also a county-wide unit called the Cambridgeshire Unit, which was doing this on a county-wide basis, trying to get businesses who wanted to 
locate in Cambridge to go elsewhere within the county or up to Peterborough. And, and of course, it didn't work. You know, no, no, if people couldn't go to Cambridge, they would go somewhere else. They'd go to Oxford, or they'd, even worse, they'd go to um, overseas. Overseas. But there were big campaigns. There was sort of well, when Welcome wanted to come to to set up in South Cambridgeshire, there was a Welcome Not Welcome campaign, uh, which made lots of catchy headlines on the local newspaper. People like Peter Dore were agitating that Cambridge was full and that all any idea about growing Cambridge was just mad. And if Peter's still around, I bump into him occasionally on the train and we have a good laugh. Well, and, he, he came from the high-tech sector that was doing so well. Absolutely, he did. Um, so he, he had done very well out of it. And, um, and also, there was this very important initiative in the late 1990s of Cambridge Futures, which was a joint initiative between the city and, and the university, which broadened out into a much broader research exercise. Which, and, it, and it's still worth a read. Um, which is absolutely still worth a read because it was a very innovative piece of work. Uh, a lot of the legwork was being done within a re- research team within the Department of Architecture led by Marcel Lechenique and who did a, had access to a very good, some very good uh, computer modelling work and also some very good 3D visualisation work as well that actually could show people a sort of 3D visualisation of what, you know, for instance, the airport being redeveloped might look like. And this was, yeah, this, I still got the VHS for that. I haven't got anything to play it on, but, but I got the video cassette. And, and, and some plans for very of, large roads which never went ahead. Well, just coming back to Cambridge Futures, what it did was it, it said, well, let's accept that we need, we, we can't deflect growth. So let's, let's accept that Cambridge is going to grow. How should it grow in a, in a successful way, in a sustainable way? And it modelled these seven different options of densification, taking bikes out of the Green Belt, building a new town beyond the Green Belt, mm. transport corridors, all, that, all those different options. And there was a massive public consultation exercise, a lot of exposure on local TV of the video uh, in local newspapers and a, ser- a lot of survey work done. And that was all put together into a report. And this was so this was about 1999 that, that yeah. this was coming through. And with, with all different that, sectors involved as well. So it was um, well, it was an open dialogue. It was an open dialogue, and it was outside the formal planning process, yeah. which I think was also important, and also slightly outside the political process. So politicians could watch what was going on. Some of them were involved on the steering committee, but it was a sort of a cross-party basis. So people could see how the public were reacting to the different options. And what emerged from that was this kind of consensus that, first of all, we should embrace growth much more positively, I think it was less than 18% was, were, prepared, were happy with the status quo. So people said that there should be some growth, that we should review, that we should make the best use of the brownfield sites that we had, although we don't have many brownfield sites within Cambridge because we don't have an industrial heritage. We've but used them up nearly. We should, yeah, we should, we should review the inner boundary of the Greenbelt and see whether there could be some parts of the Greenbelt that could be removed without damaging the basic principle of the Greenbelt. But also we should look at a, at a new town beyond the Greenbelt that could be well connected into Cambridge by public transport. And that set the ground then for the regional planning guidance in 2000, the structure plan in 2003, and then the local plan in 2006, which meant that we we should make best use of the of the brownfields, hence the station proposals and and other where the where the brownfield sites available. We did a we we, we commissioned consultants to look at the green belt. And that identified the land around Trumpington and northwest Cambridge, and also the airport to take that out of the green belt. And, and uh, yeah, northeast Cambridge as well. And well, northeast was always, was never in the green belt. That, that was no, but, but in terms of the plan, yeah, yeah. if you like, you were looking at different quadrants as a potential location that could be developed, subject to the, to, to relocating the sewage works. 
Um, and then, of course, the new town, and that established Northstown. Uh, Northstown was a good location because it could be connected in by the guided bus along the Elson Ives railway line. So, so it, it and actually Camborne s- developed of its own. Camborne, yes, Camborne was was a creature of the actually the eighteen the nineteen eighty nine structure plan. That was a you know uh, uh, so that was an earlier proposal, um, but that was obviously still being being slowly built out. Um, so it was a, it was a kind of a radical proposal, and and it. it what was good is that at that stage we had a Labour government which was committed to, to sustainable growth, John Prescott's Sustainable Communities Plan, putting in a lot of money to support the work that we were doing. So I actually left the City Council in 2004 and worked in for Cambridgeshire Horizons, which was the project management team that was set up explicitly to, to challenge the things that Sam was talking about, to bring in all the different agencies, water, um, uh, all the utilities, transport agencies, Government, getting government to fund the money for affordable housing. We had a very good affordable housing deal that got a, a, a reliable stream of, of grant money coming in from the government to a BPHA, Bedfordshire Pilgrims Housing Association, who were the and so all but, but, that but, was. But depending on the strength of the planning authority to defend aspects uh, like forty percent, yes, which we had to do. So after... the Blair government. I mean, I'm an affordable housing fanatic, yep. but the Blair government made it dependent on major development. So yep. Cambridge did all right compared to parts of the country, but only because it was able to get a high percentage of yep. land and funding from a market-led development yes. to then assist it. But yes. as you say, BPHA in South Cambridge, uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds of affordable rent housing. <clears throat> That's right. And, and of the 40% that we were... That we'd negotiated from the the main schemes, three quarters of that was was for social rented housing, yeah. was there because it got grant through this stream, but of course all that was swept away after uh, two thousand and ten, two thousand and eleven. Mr. Pickles, Cambridge, the bon- Cambridge Horizons was was, yeah. was you know all the regional institutions were scrapped, Cambridge Horizons were scrapped, uh, a lot of national agencies like CAVE, the Commission for Architecture and Built Environment, which had been funding a local architecture centre here in Cambridge, that all that money all went, so that the whole infrastructure, the sort of the professional infrastructure, if you like, for, for supporting that kind of growth strategy was just removed yeah. um, at a stroke. But, but growth continued in Cambridge because of the growth of new sci- uh, the new technology, the biotech sector, yep. the fact that the market could make money out of building housing. So a lot of developments which may have stalled in other parts of the country from 2006 kept running all the way until 2020. Yes, and, uh, and some are still we'd, running. We'd put yeah. in you know, good, robust outline planning permissions. We'd, we'd negotiated strong yeah. Section 106 agreements that provided money contributions towards schools, uh, some repayment of the guided bus routes and, and the, yeah. the physical infra- infrastructure. And biodiversity and low-carbon strategies, well, along with your the four Cs of yeah. uh, community, climate, connectivity, and I mean, character. all the major developments brought with them country parks. I yeah. mean, there's, uh, Great, Great Knighton has a country park. Trompton Meadows has a country park. Edison has a country park, uh, which enormously increased the biodiversity. Previously, just been flat arable fields mm. uh, with no really hardly any biodiversity at all. So, so actually building more houses, bringing with them country parks and uh, landscape enhancement actually added to the biodiversity of the area. So it was a kind of a win-win. But, but significant growth... In addition to uh, some growth um, in Camborne and Northstow, for that period, it was significant growth um, of the urban fringe of Cambridge. 
um, and more intensification, as Sam mentioned, like CB1. Yeah. But we are now at the point where uh, intensification is just about the only option within Cambridge because well, no, there mean, are a few sites left. But, no. but, but if you look at the build-out, it's used up most of the sites. But the big opportunities for the future are still um, the airport, obviously, yeah. uh, with Marshalls moving to Cranfield and northeast Cambridge with the sewage works being located to Honey Hill. and Subject the, to the issues that are currently at that. Well, in, yeah, that's got to go through the right process. And obviously there are, there's a lot of issues around yeah. that. That still remains a, a, a very sensible strategy for building a, a, a reasonable, sort of medium, medium density neighbourhood around Cambridge North. Yeah, in, good transport. And if that didn't go ahead, one yeah. would be looking probably okay. looking at another new town somewhere beyond yeah. the Greenbelt. So, Peter and I have had good discussion there, Sam. Some of your perspective on the last 15 years or the inheritance that we've got to when we move on in about five or ten minutes to talk about the current plan. Well, I am considerably younger than the two of you. I'd like that on the record. But I did also have some small engagement in the kind of conversations that, that Peter's just been discussing because in 1998, I was a very junior co-author of a book published by Slim Book published by my then employer, Analysis, called Cambridge 2020 Meeting the Challenge of Growth. And my other co-authors were luminaries and uh, Marcel Eschenique, who you mentioned, was one from the Department of Architecture, but also uh, David Cleveley, who's gone on to be serial entrepreneur, Alec Brewers, who was Vice-Chancellor of the University uh, at the time, and so on. That book very much maintained that the advances in what we were calling ICT then, Information and Communications Technology, would mean that it was possible for Cambridge to grow significantly without negative externalities. And I still possess a copy of that book and I open it up periodically and chuckle wryly to myself at the naivety that I went along with the arguments being put forward at that stage about how that was going to work because I think it it did two things one of which I raised at the time and got told effectively not to worry my pretty little head about and the other was something that only dawned on me later so as I was writing it I was saying okay this is clearly a key text for cheerleading for the growth of the high-tech employment sectors in Cambridge. But isn't it a bit irresponsible to cheerlead for this growth? Because it's not actually you guys who are going to have to carry the can for transport and community facilities and everything you need to make living, breathing, attractive places. And I got told, and this this is a serious comment, I got told that it was fine because local authorities would take care of it. Well, local authorities aren't able to take care of it, and partly that's due to the change in the political landscape. But it's also, I think, true to say that the scale of the growth of the city outstripped beyond imagination the kind of expansion that we were thinking about in that book. The other thing was about housing and it's really interesting when I go back and look at it now it barely refers to housing and the idea that by unleashing this 
commercial energy you would then be putting intolerable strain on the local housing market just really doesn't seem to 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 be flagged at all and i can't understand how we had that blind spot i think it was this belief that we could just do everything remotely it would be possible to do everything remotely and and there you go so i look back on that period well that was 20 years ago and it was a it was a very different environment so since 2010 i can argue that local authorities have been starved so yes where the local authority rightly had a role in say south cambridge peter it had to take hold of all of the costs of running the place including then maintaining and improving the community facilities the park etc it's some of the optimism and the easier stage in Cambridge's development happened at a time when the state was actually providing some funds. And the state has never funded Cambridge proportionate to the costs that are involved. I think Milton Keynes worked out that for every new home, you've got a, a bill for about £11,000 uh, in the first year and some bills continuing for a long time. So it then falls onto the the council to actually fund a lot of the costs of that new community. Yes, and the reason I go back to that that sort of period in my life was because that's where I see a kind of separation, a parting of the ways between the business lobby going its way and the capacity of the rest of the city to accommodate literally and metaphorically, those additional demands that would then be made on it. I think it was really interesting that we drew out both that study and the Cambridge Future study because they still have readable material in them. It's not to say that they've got the solutions, but the, the Cambridge Futures actually looks at exactly what are the challenges of infrastructure. It looks at what are the challenges of biodiversity and of, of actually trying to marry some of these issues together. Yeah, and... and- before we move on to the, to the future, I think the other initiative that's worth mentioning, because I was involved in it as well, was the Cambridge Horizons um, Quality of Life study and, and the charter that we yeah. produced. Which is a good charter, <coughs> which and was, it was setting updated out by the, the combined authority. And that's very yeah. much now forming the basis of the government's own um, charter for making good places. So it was a kind of, that was also a groundbreaking piece of work, and, and also was a kind of a way of team building as well between the different local authorities, officers, members, and also developers, university, and and housing associations. And uh, that was a a very good piece of work that also involved a lot of public meetings, a lot of publicity, just trying to define the qualities of of placemaking that we wanted to build into the new communities. And I would argue that they're mostly there. If you go to Great Knighton, if you go to Eddington, if you go to Trumpet and Meadows, they're pretty good places to, to, to live. And they've provided good quality housing, a high proportion of it affordable, although, of course, a lot of it now is affordable, the, the new definition of affordable, which is unaffordable. But nevertheless, it's there. It's all with, well served by public transport. It's all well within cycling distance of the main employment centres. Um, you know, what's not to like? It's, it's good, but uh, not everybody can afford the 600 or a million for a, for a home. But that's not just Cambridge's problem. Yeah, it's, you know, it's wider. If it was just yeah. Cambridge's problem, I would say, yeah, but it's everywhere in the southeast. Yeah. You know, let's not say it's just a Cambridge problem. I mean, we may have it slightly worse than other places, but we're very similar to other, other similar places. And I think in some ways we've actually been 
responding better than a lot of other places because we've been actually building more housing that people can occupy. And that has also in turn generated more affordable housing. Yeah. And I think um, I think it's worth recording that compared to some places and Oxford and Cambridge is one comparison, but that in terms of getting on with the job of, of building housing and developing neighbourhoods, it has been done with considerable effectiveness. Yeah. The issues that may not have been looked at, which start increasing, are the transport issues, the infrastructure issues, the utilities, and the fact that unlike 20 or 30 years ago, there isn't, as you described eloquently, looking at the regional plan, there isn't everybody in the same room. There's been significant quality of environment created, and we have housed a lot of people We've also provided affordable housing. In the process, we have just in 10 years across South Cambridgeshire and ourselves had a population which has increased from 270,000 to nearly 310,000. Which was what was planned. Uh, which was planned. Yeah. Um, and We've succeeded. Uh, and the waiting has been more in the city than in South Cambridge. Which Counts, again was planned. Which was planned. But now, whilst, the, as you said, uh, there is included in the next plan uh, the first significant tranche of a development at the Cambridge Airport at the east and the ongoing dialogue about northeast Cambridge, which can be seen as a sustainable location, but has uh, obviously bound up in decisions about the future of the wastewater plants. Cambridge 105 Radio. So you're listening to Cambridge 105 Radio, and I have here in the studio Peter Studdart, who helped draw up the 2006 plan and has been planner in the city since 1991. And Sam Davis, who has been involved in drawing up policy issues and reviews from 20 years ago, but has been an independent councillor uh, in Queen Edith, as well as a strong voice on planning um, and the challenges. We've reviewed in the part you've just listened to the inheritance, which is an inheritance both of a 2006 plan and an update in 2018. But it's also an economy that has grown very rapidly and a population. So uh, a population which has gone up in Cambridge uh, 17% in the last 10 years. And uh, there's growth continuing. We did cover the point that the growth has been majorly in Cambridge until about three years ago. And whilst there are still areas of Cambridge that are put forward for growth in the next uh, additional plan, the growth is switching significantly despite the um, allocation of housing in Cambridge North East and East to North Stowe, Waterbeach and Camborne. It is a joint plan which rightly reflects the interrelationship between ourselves and South Cambridgeshire uh, and it's one that now proposes a number of things. Originally it was proposing 12,000 additional homes and it's gone up to 20,000. There's still a debate about whether it needs to be 20,000. There are several issues about whether North East Cambridge is going to come forward, whether the wastewater treatment plant is going to move and how quickly. There are issues of water supply. There's issues generally about the future of Cambridge. Sam, you've got some fairly strong opinions. Now we've talked about the inheritance and there's a lot of really strong threads there's also some learning where you and Peter or I we might have a different view about things whether things have worked we've definitely as of today as we're talking we've got east-west rail being proposed we've got greater Cambridge partnership responding 
to the issue of transport in the city. And the third issue was the life sciences, where you're concerned about exactly how much emphasis is being put, I think, by government on, on Cambridge. Yes, today is a, a pretty momentous day, I think, for the future of the city. East West Rail route announced GCP coming back with at least the, the first stage in the exploration of the, the consultation on the sustainable travel zone, including the congestion charge and where that might go in future. And then the third thing, which I was awakened with at half past six this morning, and I have to say it was not particularly welcome news. Were you is- shouting at your radio? Someone tweeted me, I really shouldn't be on Twitter at half past six in the morning, is the the publication of the government's life sciences policy, uh, which is very wide ranging in its suggestions of of areas for action to, to support that sector. But in particular, there are three paragraphs in there about what it's proposing to do to the planning regime in order to facilitate the meeting of the needs of the life sciences sector. And it uses phrases like consulting on adding requirements to national planning framework to say that decision makers should pay particular regard to R&D needs, including the need for additional lab space and proactively engage with potential applicants. And also making investment into relevant sites more attractive by working with local planning authorities to encourage, you guessed it, proactive planning tools, such as local development orders and development corporations to bring forward development. Now, there's a lot of government speak in there, but my reading of that is that they are very interested in how they can shape planning in this area in a manner which is even more than now predicated on maintaining, accelerating the growth of the high-tech sector here. The the assumption that the planning application should be permitted or requirements to intervene in local plans. So we've had this. We've had the proposal which the university was involved in for an enterprise zone in the biomedical campus. We've obviously had an interest in the transport issues that lie behind East West Rail and some of that. Some of us welcome some of that because we don't have enough basic transport infrastructure. Wouldn't you think that Cambridge would be fairly united in saying we do not want to have a deviation from the standard planning system, which is that you have a local plan, which is already working through with a positive view about the biomedical campus, uh, where there are sites allocated and whereas you know we've got in the city quite a large bubble of investors trying to switch sites to lab space just for instance the Grafton Centre so so to reduce that to 15% of its current retail allocation so so I guess but you're worried that that, 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 that you are worried that the rules will be shifted like they were in town centres in favour of the section E provision which allows much freer movement between retail and and other uses. I'm worried that A, the ability of the local wishes to shape the future of this place will be demoted in favour of what is now global finance coming to Cambridge as a honeypot for investment. What's going on here bears no relation to local need. And I I know that Peter and I have different, apply different weightings to 
the local and the national imperatives. But it seems to me that there is a real risk in what the government is saying, that the local need will now just be completely written out of the equation. Does that add to your concerns about the existing plan system? There's a relative freedom for job creation across the country. The planning system gets involved, but not fully. Just assume that government makes a lot of noise and it's still down to the local plan. What are your concerns about the local plan and the allocation of spaces, whether it's for retail or for commercial but not high-tech, and obviously the pressure? You look at the proposals for the Beehive, for the Grafton, you look at the ambition to make money out of lab space in Cambridge, the need for lab space, but where, and certainly the concern that it'll start to be proposed in unsustainable locations in and near Cambridge. I think this issue about an employment-led housing strategy is really important because if we don't have any credible means of controlling the creation of employment space, then the gap which we already have between employment creation and housing availability and affordability will just grow. Peter, I've heard you outline a whole load of reasons why effectively we can't build a way out of the gap because of all the issues which are outside planning and to do with taxation and where people choose to put their money. Just so listeners can understand that the scale of what's going on. I went back to a, a blog post I wrote in September 21 when the first numbers from the modelling for this emerging local plan now came forward. And what I said is all of the growth we've seen in housing in the city and South Cams in the last 20 years amounts to just over half of that proposed for the next 20 years. So we've added 27,000 over the last 20 years. And at that point, September 22, when I wrote this comment, we were projecting that we would require almost 49,000 through to 2040. What happens with the local plan process is that um, obviously new information and evidence comes in and the council, the local planning authority, revisit their estimates. So since then, we've added another 7,000 to that 48,000 because it's a reflection of the booming employment trends here. Now, In, that, in total, 20,000 on top of a previous 37,000 yeah. or thereabouts. Yeah, and, and what concerns me is that that is what's described as a medium growth scenario. And very many actors in the business and property investment sector are arguing extremely powerfully that that medium growth scenario is not high enough and there are numbers out there for a high employment growth because this is all driven by the creation of employment, a high growth housing target to reflect that employment, which is more like 70,000 homes. I take the point that there can be a tension between local need and national need. But if that is the case, then I think what's absolutely owed to the local population then is honesty about the scale of the future of the city. And frankly, I think a lot of the conversations that are going on would make a lot more sense to people if they were told 
currently the population of the city is around 150,000. What we are aiming for, what we are planning for, what we know is going to happen is that the population of this city by 2050 will be 400,000 people, 500,000 people. David Cleveley, the guy I used to work with, contributed to a university report 2016. He talked about Cambridge by 2065 having a population of over 600,000 people and a travel to work area catchment of a million people. Okay, if that's what we're heading for, then let's talk about that and what's needed to get there sensibly. And the local plan process for me just doesn't do that. Okay, there's a lot in there. I don't want to get lost in numbers, but we're already got between us and South Cambridgeshire a population of over 300,000. So I think we're right to be thinking about that as the community, a double community, and then work out what extra. I accept your concerns that if government tries to put the pressure on, they'll try and get us to take more. We're already taking a lot. I can't see that a government's going to override a local decision-making process where, in addition to the balance of uh, what is in the needs of the current community, and I do think that high tech's a boon for this city, but you can have too much of a boon, like Silicon Valley. But we've also got these other challenges to people who are the high-growth fanatics because we ain't got enough water. Correct. And we've also got a wider issue of what is our community. And even with the efforts of the Greater Cambridge Partnership to get transport funding, we've got a total inadequacy of transport infrastructure, albeit they'll fill some of the gap. On the current sort of lower growth, we ain't got the infrastructure investment. And government's not going to come up and suddenly try and fill the gap. And that's why when I see language around local development orders and development corporations, Mm. it makes my blood run cold. Well, I I can understand that, but I can also remember a whole bunch of developers coming together with a plan for the ARC saying, we're going to do this to Cambridge and we're going to... So I don't... Whilst David Cleveley might have used the word 600,000 or people in the ARC came up with all sorts of extreme suggestions about taking rights away from communities it hasn't happened and you won't let it happen and people like me won't let it happen not that we can all exercise due power but but given that we've got a community there may be some resistance I think there will be resistance and I think the evidence of that resistance is mounting because the land grab for places like the Grafton and the Beehive because there is money to be made and the site that includes the flying pig and so on. These are real touch points for local community strength of feeling about the kind of places they want to live. Peter, we've had a little bit of an exchange there about the the challenge and we're talking on a day when government wants to multiply life sciences. I think I agree with Sam on this question of... um what appears to be an intervention at government level to give greater, for, for insisting that local authorities give greater weight to life sciences applications, because certainly schemes like the Beehive are just absurd and they should be thrown out. And, and if necessary, Peter's taken. not on the planning committee and this will go through a process. Yeah, but I'm amazed that, that people are even remotely, I'm actually 
amazed that the market is actually contemplating such a poor site for that kind of development because the mm. transport accessibility is really not good. Um, and the Grafton? How much of the Grafton? The Grafton, yeah. I mean, the Grafton is more city centre. So one could, you know, obviously the, the retail is shrinking and it's understandable that retail shrinks from, from the end of the Grafton centre because that's the most... Even though in centre. the 2018 plan, the plan was to increase retail by 40%. I know. Well, that just shows how how fast things Retail move. has changed. Yeah. And I've had a long history of involvement in retail planning in Cambridge. I mean, the, um, the Grand Arcade was my sort of baby from feasibility study we commissioned in 1994, which took, took 14 years to build it, but we, we at least that was a, a local authority-led okay. initiative. Seeing off out-of-town shopping, you know, we could have had an out-of-town shopping centre at Duxford if it hadn't been no, I think for one, John Gummer. We, it um, could be a lot worse, but and, it, it's still... Um, and yeah, and the just, Grand Arcade and other yeah, yeah. measures... But just to get back uh, to the point, I think retail is contracting. And looking at the Grafton Centre, what one can say about the current scheme, at least it's it's kind of using the embodied carbon of the existing structure to make laboratories okay. my preferred option for that would be to knock the if the grafton center isn't needed anymore knock it down and try and put back the original street pattern with housing but obviously that involves knocking the whole thing down and using more carbon to actually build new housing it's not an ideal way forward but i can understand why they're doing it and they're obviously retaining some shops at, at the western end okay. and, and on belly street the, the bigger point for me is this really tricky issue of what do you do when you're sitting on the in the, right in the white heat of the next industrial revolution, which is what Cambridge is is doing? We're we're absolutely at the centre of the next revolution in in science. We're like Manchester in the 1820s or whatever. You know, we're, but but they didn't <coughs> worry about rivers or water supply or all sorts of things, and <coughs> we have to. Yes, I mean we've got to sort out water, and that's absolutely right. And the ecology and. Net zero. <clears throat> well, I mean, yeah, okay, we've got to sort those out. There's a solution to water, but it's a, it's an expensive one. But we're very profligate with water at the moment. We we just use it as we want it. We wash our cars with it. We water our gardens with it. Maybe we're going to have to change our habits a bit. But well, also, the last, there are the last summer showed that we can't even supply yeah. enough to yeah. keep I our mean, plants again, alive. It's part of this problem: the privatization of utilities. I mean, yeah. water should never have been privatized. There should have been a national strategy. Okay. Yeah, but when we look at the 2006 plan. And we and and what has happened since? There's yeah. been clearly a number of build-outs in terms of communities on the fringe of Cambridge, and yep. a bit of intensification. And now there's a switch that more of the housing in the future would be in the chosen settlements for the next five, ten years in South Cambridgeshire. How would a more moderate plan? And I'm I'm with Sam that I think the people who are saying we need seventy thousand homes and there should be an exaggerated curve of growth of housing is undeliverable for a start because yeah. people are not going to build them. Yeah. But what do you see, Peter, as the balance between a growth of jobs whilst some of the companies like AstraZeneca or others can be working virtually with people all across the planet yeah. and the nature of Cambridge as an area? Where, where, for instance, would you see Cambridge in 2040? Do you see it building on North Stoke Water Beach, Camborne, as well as the two yeah. edges of Cambridge. Well, yes. I mean, we've got to keep cracking on with North Stow. I mean, North Stow has been, I think, a major disappointment, particularly as it's now in the hands of the government's development agency, for heaven's sake. And they seem, I gather that there's not a single completion in North Stow this year. Yeah. It seems to have ground to a halt. So we need to push ahead with North Stow with much more energy. We need to do Water Beach, and that's obviously a terrific location because it's on the it's on rail. With a revised location. For, for me, I mean, I wouldn't have put so much housing out along the A428 because obviously the problems of getting people in 
from the west side. But obviously, it's if dependent he, if he, on if the east rail on the east, well, the well, if east west rail comes through, then that route. would be obviously a solution to try to turn Camborne into a town, which it should have. I mean, it was originally designed as three villages, yeah. which was always a, you know, a slightly crazy idea, but that's how South Cam's made it acceptable to the, its local community. But uh, really. It should have been like Norstow when you're, you start off saying this is yeah. a town and we and it design needs, it as a it town. needs more jobs as so well. It needs more jobs as well, and, and maybe those will come when the railway comes. And so I think the railway is a very important piece of infrastructure. I think the southern route is absolutely right. Okay, it's tricky for people in House and Haslingfield, but I think that's the right way of coming in. And I'm con- having skimmed the report uh, for the reasons why they're sticking with that route, I'm, I'm personally convinced. And I think it will be a huge benefit to Cambridge because it does spread our travel to work area mm. in a sustainable way. It gives people more sustainable options to get into Cambridge and particularly to the biomedical campus and to the North Cambridge for the yeah. Science Park where the jobs are. So I think we should be celebrating that. You now, I come back to this thing about regional planning. That there has not been a debate about the regional context that Cambridge sits in. We're not we're trying to solve all our problems within our little geographical area. Even the market towns, I mean there's no assumption within the seventy odd thousand figure that suggests that the market towns are going to take any of Cambridge's housing growth. Well, so what? So no one's going to be living in Ely and commuting to Cambridge anymore. Is that right? Well, that's complete nonsense. It is, but it was a bit odd that Eric Pickles uh, owned up to being a a communist stroke anarchist because that was exactly what he did in 2010, was just basically explode things. But that does mean that we crack on yeah. um, well, we, it, we with, crack, a, with a local we, plan we crack and, on and, and Gove is I'm effectively not... letting local communities decide whether or not to move and which direction to go in well people can move in, in all sorts of directions obviously uh, working patterns are changing as well so the sort of jobs that are being created are the sort of jobs a lot of the jobs being created are the ones that can can be um, uh, work from home. I mean, lab labs not, obviously, but obviously a lot of the other jobs um, can be home working. Mm-hmm. So Cambridge's economic benefits can be spread over a much wider area without necessarily yeah. trying to provide, having to provide physical infrastructure. But obviously, we need to be grabbing all the physical infrastructure that's going, uh, including Gardi busways, including East-West Rail, and you know maybe bringing in congestion charging. I don't know. The important thing is we want a functioning bus service. That's the most important thing. Well, we need better transport, but we certainly need further infrastructure investment, or we can say yeah. to government, I think no, the other no, point no, is that no go. The land is there. I mean, the land is already allocated. I mean, the, the, the issue about the next local plan is not about looking for new sites no. because we've got the sites we've got we've got Northstone we've got Water Beach we've got the airport and we've also got uh, North East Cambridge as well which I think potentially is going to be an incredibly exciting development uh, in North East Cambridge and will start to make sense of the Science Park which at the moment is just a very bland sort of mono-use almost no-go area you know you go in there the security guards kind of peer at you if you take any photographs bring that start to integrate that whole part of North Cambridge okay. into Cambridge and that's what moving the sewage works does and okay it's it, it's upsets and if i lived in Horningsea, i wouldn't be happy about what's going on but i do get slightly upset seeing the local newspaper talking about honey hill being a beauty spot i don't the reporters obviously have never been there it's a flat field dominated by the a14 on the on the south side mm. by overhead cables on the other it's probably one of the least attractive fields one could possibly imagine there's no hill there, and there certainly isn't any honey. If I was one of the residents, I'm sure I would be absolutely out there on the barricades saying the same things that they've been saying. But there is a bigger issue here. And, there is, and the issue is, if, you, if we can't secure the sort of medium-density development on the sewage work site, it will, probably will mean we will have to have another new town somewhere yeah. beyond the Green The, the consequence is that. And more people having to drive in. Okay. So 
Sam, I've given you the last word. We have a plan which is still half-baked. It hasn't really been pulled together. Half-written, I think. In defence of my colleagues on the planning team, half-written rather than half-baked. Okay, it's half-written. We haven't got the answers on water. There hasn't really been a final view about what level of growth this community needs. There is still the pressing need for some real focus on net zero. We should be looking at keeping buildings, not knocking them down. We should be looking at the linkage with retrofitting as well as sorting out our transport mess. I'm not asking you to answer all of those, but <laughs> we've got quite a process still and there's, there hasn't even yet been a proper consultation on a draft plan, which is the ultimate stage. What's your view in terms of what residents should be looking out for? There's still these further reports to come. What is the decision process and where do you think the public should have their say? So I think it's incredibly important that the public have their say. I also think it's incredibly difficult for the public to have their say. I sit on a thing called Planning and Transport Scrutiny Committee at the council. We periodically get updates on various aspects of the local plan. Just the the paperwork associated with those updates can run to six, seven hundred pages of material. When it comes to the full draft of the local plan, the evidence base will run into tens of thousands of pages. Now, obviously, there will be summaries provided for people, but I think clarity and honesty and endeavour to rebuild some trust at this point is absolutely my number one priority because people can, as Peter and I have demonstrated this afternoon, people can have different perspectives on the direction the city takes. But the most important thing is that they have been levelled with, that the framing of the debate is accessible to them, they can see what the pros and cons are, and that they can make an informed and meaningful contribution to that discussion. That's going to be a hell of an ask, but it is incredibly important that we do our level best to to give them that opportunity. I believe with the uh, 2018 local plan, 12,000 people took the time to put comments into that process. I'd really love to hear 12,000 voices about how satisfied they then are with what was made of their comments and whether they feel that in any way what we're getting responded to their preferences. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this programme. We've been listening to uh, Peter Studdart and Sam Davis and occasionally to me. Planning for this city really matters. We inherit a lot of qualities as a city. We've had uh, considerable growth and as both Peter and Sam have said, there's good in there but there's also things to be learnt. There's definitely an importance that planning organisation, which covers both South Cambridgeshire and the city, and the two councils engage really well with the public. We have challenges. We've got challenges of infrastructure, water, others that have been mentioned. We do have to achieve quality and affordable housing, but the choice that we'll be in the next consultation um, will be about how much growth and that does have to meet the needs of our community and it has to assert the fact that it's um, a decision that's being made by the councillors and the communities of both Cambridge and South Cambridgeshire. 
So um, I hope you've enjoyed listening to our exchange, both looking back at um, what we inherited from planning 10, 15, 20 years ago. The choices, provided that whichever government is in charge, are made by the community locally and not overridden by changes that we would all seek to resist, given that it should be a community decision, um, is down to those decisions. And it will set the pattern for another 20 years when it's adopted. And then it'll go out to a planning inspector and there'll be lots of other processes. But, um, but it has to, as you said, Sam, it has to be um, visibly one that listens to people, uh, visibly addresses the environmental crisis, and visibly can be explained and understood by everybody and not in language or in terms that are uh, way above all of our heads. So thank you everybody for listening. And Peter's been off in Bhutan sharing planning. So um, so there's, uh, there's other communities out there who can also learn. You think Cambridge has got problems? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd all like to go to Bhutan, but I think it's uh, a small community. Thank you to you both. Thank you.